This audio is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on SiriusXM. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Women at Work on Business Radio. Welcome to Women at Work. I'm your host, Laura Zarrow, Executive Director of Wharton People Analytics, joining you again from my home office via Zoom. New episodes of Women at Work premiere on Thursdays at 9 a.m. Eastern, and previous ones are available as podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and SoundCloud. So check them out. Let us know what you think. And be sure to follow the show on our channel's Twitter handle, at SXM Business, as well as mine, at Laura Zarrow. As our regular listeners know, we are constantly talking about how we can help more women join, stay, succeed, and lead in the workplace. Today, we're going to be talking about where that pipeline actually begins. Not with our first jobs, but with our kids, and in particular, with our daughters. How do we raise them to navigate a complex world that needs them, but wasn't necessarily built for them? A powerful start is to consider what specific strengths they need for the world that they're living in and going to live in for years to come, and then create ways to help them build those strengths. We couldn't have a better expert than today's guest to guide us in that process. Marissa Porges is known for her work on leadership, education, and national security. She's currently the head of the Baldwin School, a 130-year-old all-girls school outside of Philadelphia, renowned for preparing girls to be leaders and change makers. A Baldwin alumna herself, she served in the Obama White House and was a visiting fellow at Harvard Kennedy School and at the Council on Foreign Relations, where her research focused on worldwide counterterrorism efforts. She served in the U.S. Navy as one of eight female aviators in an air wing of about 200. She graduated from Harvard and earned her doctorate from King's College London. She's also now an author with her relevant and relatable book, What Girls Need, How to Raise Bold, Courageous, and Resilient Women. Marissa, welcome to Women at Work. Thank you for having me, Laura. Great to be here. It's so great to have you. So, Marissa, in reading the book, I was as thrilled to get the guidance that you provide as I was delighted to hear some of the stories that you told. Well, so, thank you. The, the stories are the fun part, right, for all of us, <laughs> I think. Yes. And, and one of the things that struck me is that your career did not exactly unfold as most of us would expect somebody who flew off of aircraft carriers and served as a senior advisor in the White House. What was it that made you take on the role of the head of the Baldwin School? Well, that was certainly the, the craziest of all the left bank shots of my career. Um, but I think my career is a good example of one of the things I think we need to teach our girls more and more, this it's just not risk-taking, but it's the go-for-it attitude. Um, and so, you know, it's definitely been see something and go for it, try it out, and and then see where it takes you. And that's, you know, how I managed to uh, sort of have a choose-my-own-adventure of, uh, of a 20 years in national security, not quite 20, but almost, um, and then had the opportunity to come back um, to a community that had given me a lot when I grew up. As you mentioned, I went to the Baldwin School, graduated there, and it's it's what set me on my path to follow my own dream of flying jets off aircraft carriers. So when I had the opportunity to come back and lead the organization and help give to the next generation of young women the, the lessons I learned when I was there, but also the lessons that I learned later and wish I'd had when I was young, uh, I jumped at the chance and have uh, had you know got the opportunity to come home, really. So it's it's been a fun to be part of the community again. I love the idea that you're going to help these girls soar, and not just the girls at Baldwin, but all the girls who can be benefited by this amazing book that you've just put out. In it, you give us a framework of core attributes or competencies that we all need, but especially our girls. And they include the ability to speak up and out, cultivate competitiveness, a comfort with being competitive, collaboratively solve problems, adapt effectively, and leverage empathy. I want to talk about them all to some degree. But as a whole, why are these so important for what lies ahead? Yeah, it's a, a set of skills that over time I realized um, were the most important to me in any place uh, that I ended up. You know, yes, definitely in a lot of the male-dominated fields when you describe my career. And, I, I, you know, most of the tables I was at when it was in the Navy or the West Wing of the White House um, or studying counterterrorism um, were largely male-dominated. 
um, largely monochromatic, um, largely, you know, of one sort, one variety. And the, the sorts of skill that I found I needed most was that ability to really um, not just speak up, but really persuade the people around the table, um, really dig into my competitive spirit in a good way, um, collaboratively problem solve, be able to adapt. I mean, the things that I think are the next generation really needs, but that too often um, we're not nurturing in our young women. The other part of it is now that I'm here at this at Baldwin and I see what the next generation needs most in the workforce of the future, these are the skills that will set every kid apart, but the, that I really think will set our girls apart and give them the advantage no matter where they head. So it's it's a dual, my own story, and then where I see the future headed for our kids. Connect the dots for, um, for us to, in specific, what you see happening in the workforce of the future. Because you're not just educating girls, you're educating people who are entering workforce is changing before our very eyes. How are you thinking about it um, as you lead the educational organization and how does it play out in building these strengths? Yeah, well, that's the crazy thing. I mean, as parents and educators, you know, we know a certain world and but we're raising kids, girls who, you know, in 20 or 30 years time, the world around them is going to look totally different. I mean, recent studies have shown that uh, the jobs that today's preschoolers um, will want to have, will go after when they're um, young adults, 65% of them don't even exist right now. So this idea that we're teaching- Which is mind-boggling. Mind-boggling, right? It's a, it's just, and because it's the pace of technology is changing, but it's also because um, the way people work together is changing between both the gig economy, um, more flexible work schedules, and the sense of, uh, you know, not just globalization, but how people collaborate to solve the critical problems from climate change to global, global excuse me, inequity to almost anything that is going to be a game-changing problem um, that any workforce is going to have to face. I mean, these are problems that really take a different way of thinking, a different way of working together. So, you know, when we're thinking of what skills our kids need, it's, you know, we often rely on the reading, writing, arithmetic, or maybe we think it's about coding or a language. It's actually about a certain way of thinking mm -hmm. and a certain way of uh, engaging information and, you know, putting, connecting the dots to use the term that you had just a couple minutes ago. And I think those are as, or if not more important than some of the traditional skills we're teaching our kids. And so this is how I think we need to think about raising our girls too. It was really interesting for me to see the list because, as you said, it's not like you said um, calculus is the key to the future um, or just programming. It's more ways of inhabiting ourselves, ways of working together, and ways of understanding the world around us. Some of the things on this list feel like it's closing a gap for girls, and others seem like it also may be leveraging innate qualities that we think of as feminine, like the difference between speaking up and speaking out and empathy. Am I right in understanding these as both closing the gap and leveraging their strengths? Yeah, it's exactly. Um, clearly someone read the book closely, so thank you, Laura. <laughs> but no, it's, it's truly, um, it, it was the aha moment when I was um, not just writing the book, but the inspiration of the book was you know, spending time with the girls at my school and, and in particular, um, a seminar that I, I teach um, some of the, the seniors, the oldest girls uh, on leadership. And in the course of the conversation, it was both this idea that there are some skills um, that we, we have to give our girls that I don't think they get as naturally those um, gaps that I had when mm -hmm. I was a young, uh, when I was first out in the workforce, the ability to negotiate, the ability to sort of how I'm raising my voice in a room. Um, but then there's other skills that are naturally theirs. Certain ways they communicate that are best for teams, the way they lead, use empathy to lead, um, adaptable thinking. These skills come naturally to our girls. And if we nurture them in specific ways, it will be the thing that sets them apart. Um, and so that's, I think, you know, we don't want to just, uh, you know, we want to rely on their strengths. It's about like how to build their personal strengths and make those um, the things that stand out most and, and make them most, uh, you know, able to thrive later on. So you've clearly been thriving, but you also had a number of things you had to learn and you even allu alluded to it a minute ago. Of these attributes, which were the ones that were hardest for you to learn as you were starting out? Yeah, it, it sounds crazy to say now, but um, given uh, I consider myself fairly vocal, outspoken, my, my husband would say maybe I often <laughs> chew, right? No, no, I'm just kidding. He loves it. But the, um, 
you know, I think this idea of how to use my voice effectively, um, how to raise my voice in certain ways, um, that was something that took years to of, of practice. Um, and I still find that sometimes I'll be at a table and I have to remind myself, even now, you know, I'm a head of a school. Interestingly, while most teachers are women, by and large, around 77% of teachers are women, um, at the senior level, superintendents of schools, heads of schools, it's still largely a male-dominated um, environment. So I'm often in um, rooms where I'm one of, if not the only um, woman at the table. Uh, and you know, so I, clearly that has uh, been a theme of my career. But and sometimes I have to remind myself to lean into the conversation. And it's, uh, you know, kind of crazy after all these years. But um, and I can remember one pivotal moment in my career when I was literally in the West Wing of the White House uh, at the table with the president of the United States. It was that moment in one's career that you've been waiting for. And we were talking about national security and foreign policy and the things that were my areas of expertise. And it was the cliche of cat got your tongue. And I let men do more of the talking than I, I ever imagined I would. Um, and so part of the lessons of the book, part of the advice I give to parents and educators or anyone with a young woman in their life is how do we get our girls to practice um, their own personal way of speaking up so that when they have that moment, that moment in the elevator with the president of the United States mm -hmm. or the leader of the free world <laughs> or whoever it is, um, they don't leave and say, wait a minute, I had something I didn't, I meant to say, but I didn't. So. So I want to probe this a little bit, because when I think about the importance of finding our voice, it's it, there's multiple dimensions to it. As you noted, there's being willing to speak up in a room, particularly that's not full of women, have our voice heard when there are many voices in the room. But there's also the challenge of how do we bring our voice to bear on really unexpected, difficult moments and confrontations to stand up for ourselves, say in the face of harassment. And then there's finding a voice to ask for a raise. In all, you have stories through the book about all three of these, but for you personally, did you also struggle with all three or did you find that you could be strong in one area but challenged in another? Yeah, that's a great nuance because it is something that I think um, each of those that we just described, this idea of, you know, speaking up and being persuasive versus, uh, uh, you know, speaking out when you're sort of maybe either on the defense or need to be on the attack or, or this idea of how we negotiate. I think they all leverage a different um, part of you emotionally and part of sort of a behavioral way of thinking. You know, for example, for me, um, I still, I, I, I can dig into my competitive spirit really uh, easily. Um, and it has been a benefit in places where I did need to um, take a stand, you know, lean into something and whether it was to defend myself or against harassment or to really um, just make sure my, my voice was being heard in a moment of contention, that hasn't been the difficult thing. But I think that this idea of how we negotiate or persuade um, using our voice in that more nuanced way, that's something that I found I did struggle with. And it sort of didn't appear to me until later when I realized whether it was a uh, you know, being paid less than my men and than my male peers, excuse me, and uh, most of my career early on, um, or again, that those moments around the table where I, I was slightly less persuasive than I wanted to be, I had to learn tricks. I had to learn ways of doing it. And that's, I talked to the girls about it. And I think we need to talk to our daughters about learning those tricks early on. So they, they know it before they get into those rooms. By the way, for those of you who just tuned in, this is Women at Work on Business Radio on Sirius XM Channel 132. I'm your host, Laura Zarrow, and my guest today is Dr. Marissa Porges. She is the author of Girls Need, How to Raise Bold, Courageous, and Resilient Women. So, Marissa, as you're talking about these nuances and also the tricks that we can learn to get past them, what are some examples of things that we can do, particularly with our daughters, to help them be comfortable with um, ha reaching out to engage with the world to make things happen. Yeah. Well, and this is where it really it's, uh, you have to know what works best for your daughter. It won't work for all things. But I do think, you know, to start young and figure out little ways to help them uh, practice using their voice. It's muscle memory, right? And the more often you do it when you're young, when you get older, it becomes just easier and easier. A great and easy example is the next time you order at a restaurant, or maybe now it's takeout because that's where we're at. Um, and instead of defaulting to the, to the app on your phone, pick up the phone and have your daughter order for the whole family. 
or when you're out at a museum or at a hotel and need to ask a question, um, there's my the puppy in the background <laughs> agreeing with me. The, you know, but it's about um, having her practice very early in safe, supportive ways, coaching her to speak for you, for the family. Um, and that's getting her comfortable to engage. Um, when she gets older, it's doing the same thing, but with slightly more room to run. So the next time, you know, she maybe is in middle school and struggling um, in a class, it's not you reaching out on her behalf to the teacher or the school counselor. It's coaching her to do that on her behalf. Talk her through what it is. Have her practice what she wants to say. Then set her out and then follow up and say, well, how did it go? What worked and what didn't? What are you going to do next time differently? Acknowledging the moment, both putting her forward and saying it's important, and then acknowledging the moment and talking through will reinforce the act itself. So it's both the you know transparent conversations about it, but again, it's it's really just practicing the muscle memory that it takes to to be comfortable in your own skin when you're doing it. To tell you, hearing you describe this, it's comforting because I think, like many parents, there are things that I trusting my instincts and you're not always sure if they're wrong. But I have to say, I used to encourage my daughter who now just went to college to get on the phone and order the pizza and, you know, place her own phone calls to make things happen. And she was so reluctant at first. And now even before she left for school, she was saying to me, mom, I'll call the doctor. I'll make the arrangements. It's my life. I want to own it. And it was amazing to see the arc, but I felt guilty in the early stages of it? Was I pushing her too fast? How did I um, be comfortable while making her uncomfortable? Do you have any advice for how we can do that so that we're giving them just enough of that discomfort to help them grow, but not leaving them out there to flounder on their own? Yeah, well, and that's exactly right, Laura. Those little moments and the fact that you've already seen them come to fruition are so important in that, you know, pre-adolescence, entering the preteen years, the little moments make such a big difference. And this is where knowing your daughter, you know, it, it makes, uh, you know, you can tweak what it looks like um, to suit her, right? So, you know, you don't have to turn into an extrovert, but if she's an <laughs> introvert and has it, no, it hasn't found her voice, maybe there's some a different way. You know, change.org, online petitions, another great way for those who maybe haven't heard the power of their, their voice, their vocal cord voice, but need to still practice speaking out and speaking up for something they want. Well, that's a different way. It's in written form, right? But she still has to practice reaching out, emailing the petition to friends and family, explaining what she wants, asking for what she needs. And so that in a different way is giving her a personal voice um, that may feel comfortable to her at a certain age, right? And so then over and over, maybe it's the environment in which you do it. Maybe the dinner table versus, you know, uh, out at a restaurant is the place to start. Um, and I think, you know, even that moment, uh, there's there's one story that, that sticks out for me, and it's at a family dinner um, when the, one of the young girls at the family, a, a family friend's daughter, you know, was put sort of, I think, a, a, a little bit surprised, a little bit shocked that her dad put her on the, on the stage like this, but suddenly she found herself pitching the table, right? She was trying to get her sister's iPhone back. It was a sort of funny moment. She got put forward, and, and I think uh, the, the, they made a bet who would do it well better, and before you know it, she was standing in front of a table of adults, her, fr her family, her friends of family, um, so it was safe from that perspective. You could tell she was uncomfortable, though. Um, but at the end of the day, she practiced using her voice. So again, I think it's about creating the right environment and then finding what personally might work best um, given her own strengths. For those of you who are just tuning in, this is Women at Work on Business Radio, Sirius XM Channel 132. I'm Laura Zarrow, your host, and my guest is Dr. Marissa Porges. She's the author of What Girls Need, How to Raise Bold, Courageous, and Resilient Women, and the head of school at the highly esteemed Baldwin School here in Philadelphia. So, Marissa, when we were talking before, you mentioned a few times, um, you referred to your competitive spirit as if it's an uh, old friend that travels with you wherever you go. It's also, from what I read in the book, an essential thing to develop in our girls. Talk to me about why it's so important and how you started to find it in yourself as an asset. Yeah, this is a really interesting one because it's something I took for granted growing up. I was that kid who, you know, got knocked down on the soccer field, would just keep going. I can remember once getting a, literally, I think I had a, a bloody cut on my head in a game and it was before the day where that was, a, a you weren't allowed to go back in. And I remember saying, no, put me back in. And my dad said, sure, go for it. And I ran back onto the field. That was 
just the thing for me. Um, I was scrappy to a fault. Um, it wasn't until later when I realized two things. One, that it was um, a true asset in any work environment. It was a thing I could dig into when the chips were down, um, particularly in environments where there were slightly bigger hurdles for me than my peers, um, in the Navy in particular. Uh, not just because it was a, a very competitive environment, you were judged publicly against your colleagues and in a way that um, not maladaptive, it sort of just was what it was. Um, you had to really own that and be okay with it. Um, but I also found that um, I could rely on my competitive nature to say, nope, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna lean into this. Whether it was a uh, you know the ranking you had um, landing on carriers or sort of in flight school or that moment when um, it just was an attitude you needed. Um, but then in doing research um, for the book, I realized it's actually something um, that most girls um, well maybe don't doesn't come naturally, but it's not nurtured in them. Uh, mm -hmm. By middle school, girls are twice as more twice as likely. Um, to opt out of competitive sports than boys. By high school, that continues. Um, and so throughout their middle and high school years, really critical years for young women, they don't naturally nurture their competitiveness. And yet everyone would say, no matter where you head, whether it's the corporate world or even the PTA room, you need to be able to opt in. You need to be able to compete for something, be judged against your peers, be okay with winning and losing. Maybe it's even going for that next job or that first apartment. Um, and so we need our girls to not just um, learn to be competitive, but be okay with their competitive self. Um, and so I do think it's something that honest conversations about and finding ways to help our girls own their competitiveness um, is a really healthy thing for a young woman. Does it help at all to consider the framing of it? Um, whether what we're trying to do is beat someone else or be our best selves or be the winner? What are the differences in those things and how it plays out as we're trying to develop this in our girls? Yeah, well, and so that's the interesting thing because um, girls often, because we're they're uh, conditioned, socialized to think that it's it's most important that they're nice to their friends and, and that the compassion part of them that they're rewarded for. Um, so this, you're right, the idea of beating someone else feels bad. But it's funny because, yes, on one hand, being competitive is about being your best self. But it's actually okay to want to win, right? It, that's a good thing to want, not in a maladaptive way, right? It's not winning. You mean it's okay to be ambitious? Exactly, right? And so, you know, even to hear you say it, I'm like, well, yes, of course. You start by saying, you know, research shows that um, uh, when you compete against somebody, you perform your best, even if you don't win. But I also would say, yeah, we want our girls to want to win. We want our girls to want to beat somebody and to be okay if they lose and to be um, not, you know, win at all costs. And so it's that balance of healthy competitiveness versus maladaptive competitiveness. Um, but I love seeing it. You know, I see it at school in the little things that are done when the girls are having fun in trivia contests, right? They want to win. They want to beat the other person because they want to show that they know it, that they're being their best. Again, you know, and, and if they don't, they move on to the next thing. There's no hang up on either the win or the lose, um, but it's just the act, the energy that comes with um, being, yeah, part of a, a competition in a really fun way. It's great to see. Um, and I do think, again, whether the girls go in, off into the corporate world or into entrepreneurialism or to sort of any place they head next, that spirit and that ability to throw your hat in the ring and really go for it will serve to their advantage. I mean, it's if you look at who's in the C-suite, um, over 90% of those in the C-suite played competitive sports in high school or college. Um, you know, and it's, you know, when you look into the research, whether it's Condoleezza Rice or... Um, you know, other senior leaders were thinking of, they point to often um, competitive sports, competitive moments when they were young that gave them that spirit later on. So it just uh, disheartens me when you can look at research that shows about by middle school that is distinguished, I mean, rather um, dis uh, that stops in a lot of our girls, right? That they sort of are discouraged, excuse me, from feeling that way. I know that one of the things as a kid is that I wasn't athletic by nature and I didn't feel I was artistic. There were other places where I could get the mix, but I didn't feel comfortable doing athletic things, particularly in front of other people. How can we help our girls who may be like that, who don't like sports or don't feel um, like that's, that it's not either a joy or a comfort for them to either find those rewards somewhere else or embrace the experience anyway. 
So this is where I'll say two things. One, you don't have to be an Olympic athlete to pay a competitive sport. And I do think sports are really important for young women. It's not just about being competitive. It's about physical activity, being comfortable mm -hmm. in their body, learning teamwork, learning resilience. I mean, we build sports into the day for middle school because we want everyone to feel like it's the girls that it's, it's something they just do. Um, and I also challenge parents there to think, you know, when your son said, no, baseball's not for me. No, basketball didn't really, didn't really work. Don't, don't like it. Did you keep going? Or did you say, okay, don't bother. I mean, the parents I talked to by and large for the boys say, well, no, we kept trying. We found a sport until a sport stuck and now he swims or whatever it is. Right. But for the girl, they're like, well, it was the first sport didn't work and on to something different. So one is this idea that playing sports has lots of benefits, regardless if you're any good at it, good at it. And regardless if it's, it sticks, but we should encourage it in our young women. That Absolutely. being said, when it comes to this idea of competition, there are so many other, other places that get at the core skills of, again, opting in, um, performing their best against the peer, being okay with winning or losing, but also really wanting to go for it. Um, it could be the local poetry contest at the library. It could be, you know, competing to be president of the newspaper or, you know, whatever club she's uh, interested in. It could be a geography or a spelling bee. These are all moments that in small ways that are age appropriate, our girls, again, practice the act of competing in really normal ways that we shouldn't have our, our kids shy away from, but particularly our young women. And that between this combination of engagement and group activities, competition and sports, each of them offers so much to our girls um, that they can find ways to excel within each if we listen to them and we don't give up on them. Seems to exactly. be the, the, the really important takeaway here. So in the book, you tell a number of stories about the challenges you faced while you're in flight school. And one in particular, and in, in the first half of our conversation, you're also talking about how you faced challenges and found that internal drive. And there's a story that you tell about your overwhelming air sickness and um, how you kind of kept it a secret and were dealing with it all on your own because you were so driven to make this happen. So two questions, how did you get past it and what was it that you learned from that woman who found you in the restroom when you were cleaning yourself up afterwards? Yeah. Well, and this is one of those stories that took years to, to admit and to talk publicly about. So it's been funny to be part of, uh, part of the, the book tour now and have it be just a regular part of conversation. Um, the interesting thing is, so, you know, I was airsick from my very first flight in flight school. Um, and uh, you don't know if this is uh, okay for the radio, but I'm sure it's okay. It's uh, <laughs> Sirius XM, right? Um, that uh, I remember landing after getting airsick, and my instructor at the time said, uh, "You can do two things now. We can uh, we can document it, and you know you may have to be pulled out of flight school and do what's called spin and puke. If anyone remembers spies like us, that where they spin you around <laughs> and around until you just get over it. It's very very hard to get over, if you could imagine." Or he said, you can start eating bananas and graham crackers before every flight because they taste the same each direction. So uh, I, I um, <laughs> this is where the two things, this is where my competitive nature, well, a couple of things, my competitive nature, uh, you know, but it had been my childhood dream. This is sort of what I set out to do and I was determined to do it. Um, I also think there was a little bit of uh, perfectionism involved, right? And the thing we always talk about our girls, just not wanting to admit defeat, not wanting to admit to needing help. So I have to say that was a part of this story throughout my time in the Navy. Um, I ended up figuring out how to get used to it. I never actually fully adapted to the planes I flew. Over time, depending on the, the type of plane I was training in, um, it made a difference. And so there are certain flights that were less, you did less air combat maneuvers and it was just sort of a little easier. Um, also depended, interestingly enough, I'm rather petite. So depends how my line of sight was over the cockpit and what you could see outside. And eventually it got better. But when I was deployed on an aircraft carrier, it, it did become a continual issue. And so eventually, um, when I was preparing for my second deployment, I had one flight with my then skipper, a mentor. And it was one of those times where someone who knows you well enough and calls you out and, you know, and, and really had a heart to heart with me. And we came back from a flight one day and it was a particularly difficult flight, had gotten 
very sick and, and sort of struggled throughout and you're doing you know, significant air combat maneuvers and what's called cloud surfing when you, when you sort of are at the end of a flight and everyone's enjoying themselves and you just surf against the clouds in the sky in the middle of the ocean, which sounds like a wonderful thing unless you have <laughs> air sickness issues. Right. Um, and, you know, we landed and I just had a heart to heart with this idea of saying, you know, is there another way you can serve? Is this really what you should and, should and want to do? So I guess to answer your questions, I didn't entirely ever get over it. And the lesson I learned early on, though, was in, in part to turn my competitive spirit into a really active um, active way of thinking and behaving to help, right? To dig into that side of me and say, no, 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 I, I'm going to compete to be my best self. I want to compete against the guys in the squadron, but I also wanted to just dig into that to really, you know, be my best. And so I did use it in my to my advantage, even in those tough times that I just described. So as um, the stories were unfolding in the book, you also talked about a moment where after one of these experiences, you went into the women's room, which is usually an underpopulated place in the Navy, mm-hmm. you know, to pull yourself together, get your hair back in its tidy, you know, by regulation yeah. bun, and that another woman had come out and you were given the advice, don't let them see you cry. Yeah. Talk to me about why that stuck with you and what that means for you. Because it means a lot to me. So I have a few questions about it. Yeah, it's a really interesting thing. And it's something that I think about now because, you know, while, um, you know, different places uh, as a woman that I've been um, as a leader, right, sitting in front of a room or a conference table or a boardroom. And, you, you know, I think um, we use our emotions in different ways. And I think there's a power to that, particularly as a, a female leader, um, mm-hmm. to be able to uh, use your emotions to connect with your audience, to um, understand them, empathize with them, and and then, you know, move the group forward in a certain direction. But I do think particularly in an environment where um, tears are still looked at a certain way and, and uh, crying is uh, an extreme behavior that, um, that I found, you know, called into question my, um, oftentimes my leadership or my decision-making, and, and this may be changing, but I still think it's largely the case. Um, this advice at the time that I had from a, a female fighter jet pilot who was a, a trainer in the squadron where I was a trainee. So she was, you know, the, she was the glass ceiling breaker that I was trying to follow in her footsteps. And she said, you know, don't let them see you cry, um, put your game face on. And I had used that. And it's sometimes I think just, a, a, you know, maybe it's my own trick to say, no, you know, I'm going to, this is going to be my tough moment. It doesn't always have to be that way. And there are certain times it's not appropriate, but you know, I, I do think um, for me, at least it's felt right. I know that's not all, always the case for female leaders. And I think we, um, women have to sort of feel what works best for them. But I found that that has made me um, feel and be my strongest as a leader. Well, one of the reasons why it interested me is because there are different reasons why we cry that women will cry when we're angry. Sometimes we'll cry because we can't express ourselves and it's the byproduct of silencing ourselves. And it can also come with fear and sadness and a whole range of emotions. It sounds to me like for you, this became synonymous with rise to the occasion and adapt. Is that a fair interpretation? Yeah, I think it's a great way of putting it, right? And so it's exactly, it's how you turn your emotions into something that can be useful for you, right? And so it was this, you know, if you harness the anger in a different way, um, if you learn to use it to raise your voice instead of perhaps um, demonstrate, show your emotions in tears. Um, And it was just sort of for me, again, uh, it did uh, help me rise to the occasion. But again, I do think that's uh, personal, something that people have to try and figure out for themselves what works best. But yeah, you know, that does... Um, thank you for interpreting it through the, you know, in the course of, uh, you know, of our podcast together. I feel like um, I have a whole new lens on it, but it's true. It, it is something that worked for me. Um, I admired it. It really spoke to me because I also had a hard time not crying at moments of confrontation. And so learning how to um, hold, for me, it became part and parcel of what you talked about earlier of finding your voice. Because if I felt like I was going to cry, that was the only thing that would involuntarily silence me. So I'm intrigued by the mental process, the emotional process that you went through to get to the point of action. And whether it was being able to speak out or do or lead, um, it, it was really inspiring to me, Marissa. Well, I'm glad it was helpful, but it's also something I think we can translate to young women too. Right? Sometimes I talk to the girls and when they face a, a moment of failure or a moment of fear or a moment of you know, the, what would have brought tears, 
Um, you know, we talk about it for a bit through the emotional lens. Um, you know, and, and one that sticks out is, is a time when, you know, it's the reality of high school and they didn't, uh, one of my students didn't get into the college of her dreams um, and also didn't get into the second choice college of her dreams and then didn't get into the college she thought she was going to go into. And this moment where she was like, I just don't know what to do, you know, what happens next. And after you get through the emotional, you know, conversation, there's this moment where I think it's helpful to help our girls practice turning the corner and harnessing that emotion in a different way. As you said, like turning it into a voice or turning it into action. And this is, I, I actually described, I can remember sitting on a couch with her and saying, okay, I'm going to tell you my story when I turned it into action. And then how do you quote unquote operationalize next steps? What next steps would help, right? And how do you turn that emotion not into tears or anger, maybe not even voice, but into some next step that makes them move forward, helps them move past whatever the emotion is, because um, that will be key wherever they they head next as leaders. Marissa, it sounds like in that moment you were you were providing empathy, clearly something that we're going to talk about a little bit more. That's a critical skill um, and a critical attribute to bring to the table. But that you were also at a pivotal point in the conversation, presenting yourself as a role model and then a guide to help direct her to recovering from this moment and being able to move forward. What advice do you have for us as moms, as um, adult women around younger women in our lives about when it's how to approach that so that we're not kind of shoving ourselves down their throats, but being Mm -hmm. there for them as role models in ways and at times that are good for them? Yeah. So the role model thing is so important. Um, particularly because young women respond to same gender role models, role models who look like them, sound like them, um, have some connection to them more than boys. Um, and in part and parcel, it's because there's more male role models out there for young boys to look up to. Um, but I, you know, I think it does come down to also how young women build relationships. So when we ourselves can serve as role models, as moms, as aunts, as you know, as uh, the adult women in our girls' lives, it's so important. And I think it's about being honest in our telling of stories. So it's it's sharing that moment when I, you know, faced failure in the Navy, when I, you know, wasn't at my best, when it wasn't sort of this success story. Um, and so it's being honest about those and then talking truthfully about what we did about it. Um, it. It's, you know, held up by social science research that actually shows lessons learned in moments of failure, right? So the, the lessons of what didn't work mm-hmm. actually have more impact on the reader, the listener, than the lessons of success that we think we need to tell. And I think it also disarms um, our girls. It doesn't give them this high bar of excellence they have to shoot for. It makes it more relatable. And then we can help them think through, well, what should they, could they do differently about it? Um, so for me, it is, you know, telling the story of, you know, what was uh, at the time and still remains um, the moment of I thought of as failure in the Navy when I realized it wasn't a career path that I could continue pursuing. And then talking honestly about, you know, crying in the bathroom and what did I do about it? And then the girl can, you know, a young woman can say, well, wait a minute, I've had those moments when the emotions overcame me and, and how can I, you know, what should I respond? How does it feel good for me? Um, I, I do think this idea of sharing with our girls, um, not just the highs, but the lows in really honest ways. Um, it doesn't have to be all the time. It's not an everyday thing, but it does have a, you know, a bigger impact than we even realize on young women in our lives. I have to tell you, I'm having that moment I crossed like great truth or good design. It's like, of course, why didn't I see this sooner? The difference in the rapt attention from my own daughter when I share those kinds of moments where I struggled or something was hard or I blew it compared to when I share when something went really well. It's very clear what got her attention and what was meaningful to her. So I appreciate the way that you broke that day for us. Um, it made me think of something else that you wrote about in the book, which was that storytelling helps to build adaptive performance. Is that what this is relate, re, related to? Tell me more about it. Yeah, well, and so that's where that I found this particular bit of research. Um, and it actually then became something that reflected well for me on, on uh, my, my own life personally and professionally. Um, and I think this discussion of how we uh, become flexible thinkers, um, uh, looking closely at how we become behaviorally flexible, um, flexible in in our thinking and doing and and our emotions too, is a really important uh, thing to start talking about. You know, more and more, it's a skill set being adaptable that 
our, you know, adults, young adults need and our kids need to learn sooner. Um, you know, the past, uh, Six months of a pandemic is one example, but the, the future will demand adaptability, learning and relearning these, those new jobs we talked about earlier, you know, in the, in our discussion. Um, and so for me, my stories have become stories of that adaptability over time, but it's definitely something that I've learned later in life. Um, and I'm hoping that our young girls can learn conscientiously um, earlier on. And can they, by telling their own stories to other, does that help or is it about listening to other people's stories? Well, I think if they're telling their own stories, it, you know, it's, it's an interesting um, thing. I think um, when you're, when you're young, I don't know if you get the lessons, right? I'll be honest, mm. it, this sort of didn't come out until later. And so in some ways, I think it's more about uh, us sharing our stories um, or when you're hearing them, help them reflect on the points that matter most. So you know, one thing you're, you, we just talked about when, before we started was that your daughter's off to college um, at the moment of significant uh, adaptability or the need <laughs> to be adaptable. But, right. and so the stories we tell in that moment isn't just, you know, what worked. Actually, the, the story that I tell most often when I'm talking to our, our you know, seniors is um, the things that went wrong when I went to college, right? Because it goes wrong for every freshman. Um, but then how I figured it out and adapted there, whether it's the roommate um, conflict that happens or whether it's the first time you shrink your laundry or whether it's that first time you didn't know, you know, how to set your budget effectively or missed your classes or on and on and on. Um, and yeah, those seem silly now, but at the time for an 18 year old, 19 year old, they're really pivotal. Um, and I think um, in hearing the stories and then telling their own versions, it's the conversation that unfolds um, that can help uh, help a girl refine what is her natural adaptive tendencies, right? Because this isn't about making somebody different than they already are, you know, and I, I hate the conversations where we're like, oh, you know, is it about young changing young woman into something different? No, it's about helping her find her personal strengths mm -hmm. and helping her lean into them and refine them. Um, and so this is where I look forward to hearing, you know, when you talk to her about how those first week go, weeks go, and then what's working when she's adapting to a roommate or a new work environment or, you know, school under COVID, and then what's working, what's not, well, why, why not, and then what to do next time, right? And it's in the conversation, the back and forth, these little moments that have the biggest difference on our girls. The person that I get to have a conversation back and forth with right now is Dr. Marissa Porges. She's the author of What Girls Need, How to Raise Bold, Courageous, and Resilient Women, and the head of school for the Baldwin School here in Philadelphia. I am Laura Zarrow, and this is Women at Work on Business Radio on Sirius XM 132. So, Marissa, as you talk about storytelling, it also makes me think about the power of reading. And you talked about it as reading fiction is a way to develop empathy. So first of all, talk to me about why is empathy so important? And then why is it that by reading fiction, it help us, helps us build that skill? Yeah, empathy is one of the most underrated qualities of good leadership. Um, it's come to the fore in the past few years as something more and more uh, people think about and talk about, but I still think we're not quite there yet in thinking that it is a true uh, true hard skill of leaders that we sort of need to hire for and we need to lean into and we need to make sure every leader um, practices. Uh, but when you, whether you look at the bottom line for how you uh, bring your best to your customers or whether you look at um, how you're building a supportive uh, environment for your em employees mm -hmm. and having less turnover, you know, to all the things in between, even how you're running your meetings, um, empathetic communication skills, the ability to see somebody else's perspective and make a decision with that in mind. Um, these are core skills for any leader, any business owner, you know, any member of a, a workforce team. Uh, and so it's a, a true, um, it's a true a quality that truly helps any person stand out in their workforce. It's also a quality that comes naturally to young women early on. Uh, it is because of how we're nurtured to communicate. A lot of it is how we're socialized to relate to our peers. Um, and as a result, if we help our girls lean into it and realize it's a powerful thing, not just because we want them to be nice to their friends, but certainly <laughs> because it'll help them, you know, perform better in any work environment or personal environment. Um, I think that can be a true advantage to them no matter where they, you know, go next. As I, I sort of said that, because this is really not about what they do next. It's about how they do it and how they do it well. Mm -hmm. So if we, if we think of it as a, a skill um, and then we think, well, how do we, how do we develop it? Um, you know, reading, perfect, easy way, something our, our girls do, uh, you know, in school, out of school, but think about what we're encouraging our girls to read. Fiction in particular um, helps 
uh, develop empathetic thinking, particularly when the protagonist, the main character, is a young woman, is a girl that uh, perhaps our, our girls can relate to in some way, but also has something different, whether it's because of different economic background, a different racial background, a different period in life or going through a different challenge. Um, it helps young women put themselves in someone else's shoes. And then in a conversation about, well, what happened along the way helps them understand how to take perspectives and make decisions with those perspectives in mind. I can remember one girl and I interviewed for the book actually remembers, you know, she was off to college. And when I talked to her about, you know, she was somebody known for her empathy, known for um, being someone who was extremely compassionate with friends and classmates um, and others in our community and, and really acted on it. Um, and I asked her about where that came from. And she actually, without prompting, called out a book that she read in fifth grade called Esperanza Rising. And she remembers it sticking out and saying, yeah, I just, you know, one thing I remember early on was this book I read about this young girl. And she told the whole story from, you know, eight years prior and how she recalled the conversations that stuck out um, in class and at home about what this young woman had gone through in the book. And it just, you know, then you see the research bears it out and, and points it out to be part of how we develop empathetic thinkers. And you think, well, this is something we can all do at home relatively easily. <laughs> Most definitely. And I want to circle back, though, because we touched on this a little bit before, that in trying to help our girls develop that empathy, that like you said, it helps you work and play well with others, but it's also about it's part of good leadership. It's part of effective innovation. It's a skill. It's a character strength that applies in so many different ways. Um, but that it can be hard for girls in particular, I think, to resolve their empathy with that competitiveness. And you talked in the book about a way that playing games at home is a way to help socialize and normalize competition um, and have it be fun, um, but also be filled with affection for one another. Am I reading that properly? Could board games have a whole different role in our future? Yeah, well, so this is where, you know, the, the dual idea of you can be empathetic um, and compassionate and sort of have that good nurturing relationship uh, side of you. Uh, and you can also speak super competitive and, and lean into that as well. You know, there's a father in my community and, and at school. And I remember, you know, out of nowhere, he started talking about, uh, you know, what he'd done on the weekend. And he said, he said, finally, um, his daughter had uh, finally beaten him in Connect Four. And I said, oh, I said, yeah. And, you know, she was in third grade and he'd been teaching her the, you know, and he said, yeah, the, the first time we played, I, I, I sort of talked her through and let her win. But after that, I wanted her to compete. And so, you know, we always think, oh, we have to let them win sometimes. It feels good. No, he he wanted to, you know, clean it, have her know the strategy. And then uh, eventually took, a, sounds like a, almost a year. Um, and he said he enjoyed it more than, than she did. Um, but, you know, I think uh, finding these moments when um, it's healthy competitiveness, um, but it's also a nurturing relationship, uh, it, it sort of builds the boast, the best of both in our girls. Um, so I want to switch gears for a minute and talk about you before we run out of time today, Marissa. One of the things that you mentioned um, lightly in the book, but it really intrigued me, was you are not just an educator um, and a veteran, you are also a mom. And you became a mom relatively quickly in your tenure at Baldwin and took a relatively short maternity leave totally by choice. In that space of how can we be empathetic and supportive of the women on our teams and also hear their voices and let them carve, you know, make their own path into parenthood. Talk to me about why you made the choice that you did and what advice you would have actually for employers in how to help women on their teams um, have the similar room to make choices. Yeah, that's a, it's an interesting one. I know when, when we started and you mentioned this was going to come up, I think it's been percolating in the back of my head in terms of uh, what this decision was. And, and sort of for listeners, it's a, I have now um, almost a year old. So we're a few weeks out from his uh, 12 months, not quite what, walking, but um, and I have a little boy, which is totally off brand when you run a girls' school and just wrote a book about <laughs> girls, but that's okay. Um, he's super cute. So we'll uh, put it aside. But the, um, uh, you know, and when I took my maternity leave, um, I uh, it was at the start of the school year. Um, it was at the start of my then fourth year as head of school. Um, and and frankly, you know, I'm 
you know, work is my thing. I, I love working. <laughs> I love what I do. I love, you know, being part of this community. I love leading a community and helping. And, and so, and I have a supportive partner who, you know, is, is okay with that. And so, you know, it, um, we give, uh, you know, uh, a full uh, 12 weeks off to our employees. Um, and it's sort of, you know, you know, varying forms of what that looks like, of course, depending on the school year or when it is. Um, and that didn't feel right to me. You know, I, I ended up taking six weeks off um, with the full support of my board of trustees and of my community and of my senior staff. Um, and even that, I'll be honest, I was on the call, on the phone and the team knew that we sort of had arrangements <laughs> of when I, when I would do my check-ins and what things. Um, I had a, a wonderful assistant head of school that we spent, a, you know, over the summer walk, talking about, you know, which things needed, you know, how I would support her even when I was, uh, um, you know, as I said, not on the moon, just down the street, there's always phone calls. Um, and it, it, it felt right to me. And I think it's an interesting, you know, it was, I think, hard for some people to understand um, this idea of, you know, wanting to come back even with a six-week-old at home. And I, again, I had the good fortune of having a super supportive, you know, husband who was all for that. And, and sort of, we made it work. Um, and, I, I, you know, family and friends. And there was definitely those times when I had to call on uh, friends and family to, to come take over when the baby was home and I needed to run to work even after those six weeks. But of course, um, I think the flexibility um, to make it work for um, your employee, at whatever stage she's in and re- recognizing that it could change. Um, and so I, I did, you know, I have to say that when my board said, yep, this is what we're going to set it out for. We had a sort of had a flexible timeline for returning. It was an honor about approximate time. For me, it still worked. I was ready to come back. There were things that I wanted to do, um, you know. But then, even that flexible return period to say, yeah, you know, maybe a little bit more flexible hours, things like that. Without a doubt, Marissa, true to everything you've shared with us today, um, knowing yourself, using your voice, finding that courage, um, and bringing your heart to bear on it, you have given us a beautiful book, an hour of so much that we learned. Thank you for all of it. Well, again, it was a fun, uh, fun hour and a pleasure to be here. So I'm just glad we made, we had the time for it. So thank you, Laura. Oh, you're welcome. And for people who are interested in learning more, they can find you at Marissa Porges, uh, the baldwinschool.org, of course. And uh, where can they find the book? They, they can find the book on Amazon or at an independent bookstore, any place you find books, uh, or my website, Marissa Porges, M-A-R-I-S-A-P-O-R-G-E-S.com. And on the website, there's actually reading lists and um, other resources for parents and educators for our young women today. So please check it out. Marissa, thanks so much. And thank you, everyone, for joining us today. If you have a question about something you heard, email us at businessradio at SiriusXM.com. You can follow us on Twitter at SXM Business and me at Laura Zarrow. For more guest interviews, check out our Wharton Business Radio Highlights podcast on iTunes and Google Play. 